Often we see the new year as a time for new beginnings. People decide they're going to eat less or drink less or they're going to exercise more or they're going to go to bed earlier. We could call those kinds of things small-scale new beginnings. They might last and they might not. And in any case, they don't involve any massive changes, really. They might affect our body weight just a little bit. They might make us feel just a little bit better. But they're quite minor new beginnings. But this first Sunday of the new year, we're going to look at a major new beginning. It happens in the life of King David. And it happens after God's forgiveness. We've been away from 2 Samuel for a couple of weeks, so let's just remember the situation as we left it before Christmas. David had fallen into sin. And his sin made a very significant mess. The primary mess was between David and God. We were told David's sin was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, of course, there were other results of David's sin, but the most significant thing was how offensive it was to God. David realized that himself. We saw how he prayed in Psalm 51, Against you, you only have I sinned. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David knew very well he was unfit for God's presence. He needed to be cleansed. He needed to be forgiven by God. And amazingly, God did forgive him. When David owned up to his sin and repented of it, God's word came to him through the prophet Nathan. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David's relationship with God has been restored. God has taken away the stain and the guilt of his sin. The vertical mass of David's sin is gone. And it wasn't cleaned up because David earned forgiveness some way. He didn't have to go on a pilgrimage. He didn't have to do any kind of penance. This new beginning came purely by God's grace. The greatest problem caused by David's sin is fixed. There is peace between David and God. He's reconciled to God. And the joy of that must be overwhelming for David. Certainly we're going to see a very different man from the one we saw a couple of weeks ago. The David who lusted after another man's wife and then took her. And then when she became pregnant, David went on a binge of deceit and murder and hypocrisy. All of it to try and get away with his sin. When we remember David's sin, it's incredible that God just wiped his guilt away. And whatever else happens, that's always going to be the most significant part of this story. 
But we've also seen God has not promised to clean up all the horizontal consequences of David's sin. That mess hasn't gone away. And this morning we're going to see what it means to live in the midst of that mess after God's forgiveness. This is a key passage for us. Because to a greater or lesser degree, we need to know how to live with the mess of our sin. Even after God forgives us and gives us peace with him, the mess on this level isn't always going to go away. So let's read from 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 15. And we'll read down to the end of chapter 12. If you're using a church Bible and you haven't found it yet, it's page 315. And in the large print, 485. And just to remind you of the very immediate context, what has just happened is that Nathan has told David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this thing you you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. That's the son born out of David's adultery with Bathsheba. And now we read in verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, The child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. 
Otherwise, I shall take the city, and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. David David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. This is God's word. And we see two very simple things here. We see God's authority over the consequences of sin. And we see God's grace in the midst of the consequences of sin. Remember, the vertical consequences of David's sin are gone at this point. He has been forgiven. Now the focus is on this level. So we're talking here about the horizontal consequences of David's sin. How it affects his circumstances and the circumstances of all those people around him. And we see, first of all, God's authority over the consequences of sin. The passage begins with the child's illness. And we are not left in any doubt. It is the Lord who brings the illness. Verse 15 says, The Lord struck the child and he became ill. I'm sure we have our own personal reactions to that. But what we're interested in is what the Bible has to say about it. Because we know God does not always strike children that are produced out of sin. God does not operate on a fixed principle that if the parents sin, the child dies. We know that because one of David's ancestors was conceived through adultery and prostitution. Genesis chapter 38 tells us about that situation. It tells us a lady called Tamar presented herself as a prostitute. A man called Judah committed adultery with her. From that encounter, twins were born. David is a descendant of one of those twins. And so ultimately is Jesus Christ. Tamar, Judah, and their twins are mentioned in Jesus' ancestry in Matthew chapter 1. So, we know God does not have a thing for striking kids born in sinful circumstances. In fact, if we read through the Bible, he's just as likely to elevate those children to positions of privilege and blessing. So then, why does God strike this child born in sinful circumstances? Well, we've already been given an answer to that in verse 14. Look back to the middle of verse 13 at Nathan's response to David's repentance. Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Then the NIV says, But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord... The son born to you will die. 
That is not the most helpful translation. What the Hebrew text actually says is, because by doing this, you have caused the Lord's enemies to show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So the point is, David's sin was not just a private mess. Remember, he's God's Messiah, God's anointed king. David did not sin as an unknown man in the street. David sinned as God's representative on earth. And David's behavior has caused the nations around Israel to say, look, Israel's God isn't any different from our God's. He's okay, apparently, with adultery and murder and hypocrisy. That's what his Messiah gets up to. We'd had this idea that Israel's God was special and different. We thought he was holy. But it seems that we're wrong. God has forgiven David's sin. But God is going to protect the honor of his own name. He is going to show his enemies he is holy. He has taken away the guilt of David's sin, but he is going to show he's not okay with the sin. The child produced by David's sin is going to die. That's what God has announced in verse 14. But when the child then becomes ill, look how David reacts to it. In verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. But he refused and he would not eat any food with them. David doesn't offer up just a token half-hearted prayer for the child. He pleads with God. He goes about this with genuine intensity. For days and nights on end. Refusing to eat. And so we have to ask, what's behind this? Well, what's behind it is, David knows God hasn't promised to take away the consequences of his sin. But David knows God could take them away. David doesn't expect it as his right, but he pleads for it. He knows the God who has shown him the grace of forgiveness could show additional grace in healing the child. David is recognizing God's ability and pleading for God's grace. On the one hand, David doesn't presume it's God's duty to heal the child. But on the other hand, he knows it's not a waste of time asking God to heal. He knows God has genuine authority over this situation. And so David gives it everything he's got. He refuses to be sidetracked, even by the elders of his household, his royal counselors. And the lesson for you and me is, when our sin brings consequences, we ought to plead with God to intervene. 
If he has shown grace in forgiving our sin, he may show grace in cleaning up this mess too. David's experience of God's grace has convinced him it's worth pleading for more grace. What you and I must not do is come to God in repentance and then assume the consequences of our sin are some kind of punishment God doles out. As if he says to us, I forgive you, but then he smacks us around afterwards. No, David knows God's forgiveness is real. This situation is not some punishment David had coming to it. He has been reconciled to God. He can plead with his Father in heaven. He can plead as a son who is accepted and loved. The consequences are David's fault. And God may choose to let them play out. He may have his own reasons for doing that. But David doesn't just shrug his shoulders in the middle of it and say, well, that's God for you. He forgives, then he punishes. There's nothing to be done about it. David knows that's not how it works with God. Once we have repented of our sin, the consequences of our sin are not a punishment that we just have to grin and bear. We can plead with our Father in heaven knowing he has truly forgiven. And he may show even further grace. He may clean up some of this mess we've made. David knows that, and so he pleads for the child with all he has in him. He pleads right up to the point where God makes his decision clear. And then we see David accepting God's decision. On the seventh day, the child dies. David's servants are afraid to tell him. If he was so intense about this while the child was still alive, what on earth is he going to do now the child has died? They wonder, is he going to go over the edge and commit suicide if we tell him? But look what actually happens when David hears the news. Verse 20. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, he fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That last statement from David is simply talking about the finality of this situation. Physical death is a one-way trip. David says, one day I'll follow the child, I'll die as well, but he's not going to come back to me. 
So what would be the point in continuing to plead for him? God has given me an answer. He has made his decision clear. So long as the child was alive, David threw himself into pleading for the child. He knew God had the authority to intervene. But when God's decision becomes clear through the child's death, David accepts that decision. He knows God equally has the authority not to intervene. While David was pleading all those nights and days, he didn't assume God owed him one. He knew God could choose to say no. And when God does say no, David accepts it. And that's where some of us get it wrong. Either we never truly plead with God at all because we think there's no point. We assume God basically ignores prayer. Or we do plead, but then we won't accept a no from God. We think he's let us down if he says no. After all the tears we put into it, God has the cheek to deny us what we wanted. But David gets it right here. He pleads with all he's got. He knows it's worth pleading. God may show more grace. But when God says no, David doesn't get angry. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't put on a t-shirt that says God's not fair. No, verse 20 says he tidies himself up. He goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. David is sending a message to anyone who's watching him. God is the one in authority. And I accept his authority. If you or I get angry when God doesn't show grace in a particular way, then we have not understood grace. Grace is undeserved. Always. The grace of forgiveness is undeserved, and so is the grace of cleaning up the mess we might have made. God has promised the grace of forgiveness. If we come to him in repentance through Jesus, that's a promise. It's a guarantee. But he has not promised the grace of cleaning up our mess. He may or may not give us that grace. And if he doesn't give us that grace, he's still good. He's still worthy of our worship. If we only worship God when he gives us what we want, then we have misunderstood grace. And we have misunderstood God. He has authority and he sees more than you and I do. He has his reasons for what he does and for what he doesn't do. We have no good reason to get angry 
because he says no to us. And that is especially true when he allows us to live with the consequences of some mess we have made. When you and I enter into sin, we do not get to pick the consequences. And we certainly have no right to blame God if he lets those consequences play out. So let's plead with God in our situation. Seriously. And at the same time, let's acknowledge he has the right to say no. Let's show he is still worthy of our worship whatever answer he gives us. What has just happened in David's life is sad. It's deeply sad. And we don't need to downplay the sadness. We don't need to skim over it. But it would be equally wrong to miss the ways God does show grace in David's life. Because that's what we find in the rest of this passage. God's grace in the midst of the consequences of sin. First of all, God's grace at home. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. We've seen God decide not to take away one consequence of David's sin. The first child died. And in chapters to come, we will see more consequences that David has to live with. But here... It's amazing to see God take away a major consequence of David's sin. Remember how this marriage to Bathsheba started. This is a marriage grounded in adultery and deception and murder. That was the foundation of this marriage. A marriage like that should not turn out well. It has no right to turn out well. The level of distrust and dishonor would have been so high. No marriage like that should be able to survive, let alone flourish. But by God's grace, this marriage does flourish. And the marriage is blessed in an unusual way. They name their son Solomon. That means something like the Lord's restoration. But the Lord sends Nathan the prophet with an even greater name for the child, Jedidiah. That means loved by the Lord. It comes from the same Hebrew word as David's name. David's name means beloved. And after all David's disobedience and all his sin, God says, not only are you still beloved, David, this son of yours is beloved too. 
How can this happen? This marriage came about in such ugly sin and betrayal. How can it be so blessed? Well, that's grace. It's undeserved. David had no right to expect this. And as we've seen, God doesn't guarantee this kind of grace. None of us should ever go into sin expecting God to bring grace like this. He may leave much of the mess we've made. But we mustn't miss this. When we are forgiven, we are also loved. And our Father will show that love to us. Grace will be poured out in our lives. The problem is, you and I can be so focused on the ways God says no, we can spend so much time moping about the things he doesn't fix for us, we miss the grace he is pouring out on us. So let's apply this very personally to ourselves. Let's ask, am I so obsessed with some area where God has said no that I'm actually overlooking his grace in another area? Some undeserved blessing. Some amazing sign of his love to me. Because in the end, if any of us are either disappointed or bitter at God, it's either because we are denying him the right to say no, or we're refusing to see the significant ways he says yes to us. But maybe you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. In my situation, I'm facing the consequences of somebody else's sin. Not my own. Why do I have to suffer because of a mess made by somebody else? I do have the right to be disappointed with God. Do you? If you have come to Jesus Christ, God has adopted you into his family. He has given you the name Jedediah, loved by the Lord. Romans chapter 8 says, you are a co-heir with Christ. You have an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for you. And that grace to you cost God the death of his own son. The father and the son both suffered because of the mass we made. They faced the consequences of all our sin. They paid dearly so we could join the family. So do you have a right to be disappointed with them? I realize some of you live with serious pain because of other people. But can any of us really say God has shortchanged us?
Can we say that when we have his forgiveness and his acceptance? When we have an eternal future with him? Has God not been gracious to all of us? We've seen how in David's situation he experienced that grace at home. The final verses show God's grace in the kingdom. Look down to verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I shall take the city and it will be named after me. This war has been going on for a while. We've probably forgotten about it while we've been focusing on David. But the origins of this fight were described for us back in chapter 10. The Ammonites started a war with Israel. And in chapter 11... While David was getting involved with Bathsheba, Joab was getting involved in a siege against the Ammonite city of Rabbah. Joab is the commander of David's armies. And sieges took a long time. If a city had a secret water supply or a well-defended water supply, they could hold out for ages. But Joab has finally got to Rabbah's water supply. He knows the siege is soon going to be over. They can't last without water. And so he calls David to come for the finale. Now David, in fact, sorry, Joab, is someone we've met before. He's a bit of a scary guy at times. He does some very brutal things at times. But Joab knows the importance of the king. Joab is not a glory hunter, whatever else he might be. Joab wants the glory to go to Israel's king. And so David arrives and he leads this final attack. It's successful and David's reward is a massive crown plus a great quantity of plunder and a big workforce for David's building projects. Does David deserve this kind of success after all he's done? No. It's God's grace. And it's not just about David. This is about God building his own kingdom through David. When God forgives us, Part of his grace to us is to use us in building his kingdom. That applies today just as much as in David's time. We noticed that when we looked at David's repentance in Psalm 51. Sin does not make us dead in the water when it comes to being useful to God. When we repent, he is gracious enough to use us again. Now, in David's case, he continued as Israel's king. God used him in the same way he had before the sin. 
It doesn't always work that way. When God forgives us, he may also close down some particular area of usefulness. He may use us in another way. But in his grace, he will use us in some way for his kingdom. If any of us don't serve, it's either because we've decided we are the exception and he won't use us, or it's because we only want to serve him in certain ways. And so we're closed off to the service he does open up to us. And that takes us back to what we said earlier. When it comes to serving God, let's not be so obsessed with some area where God might have said no to us. Let's not be so obsessed with that closed door that we're overlooking some area where he's saying yes to us. One of the graces of God's forgiveness is that we all get to serve his kingdom. Weak and undeserving as we are. If you and I let this passage sink in, it can set the tone for us this year. Let's go into this year recognizing God's authority over our circumstances. Let's pray to him with confidence in his ability. And let's have our eyes open to see his grace in the midst of our circumstances. Our next song leads us to thank God for what he has done and trust him for what he's going to do.